Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses. As we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Craft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening, where we are set to continue our reflections into the book of Genesis. We are in chapter 9 and that great covenant with Noah. Yesterday, we got up to and through, what, verse 7? So this evening, in principle, we will focus in on verses 8 to 17, and then we'll just kind of go from there, kind of like yesterday. If we get into verses 18 to 27, great. If we don't, certainly we have next week to do so. Now, before we read those verses, I just did want to give you a heads up about what we're going to do tomorrow. Father Mike will be with me. And uh, last night we watched Jumanji. We went to the movie theater. And so we have talked about it and we are uh, ready, set, go to talk about Jumanji. And I have to say, just to whet your appetite, that I was uh, surprised by some of the things that I saw. Certainly uh, a rich movie. It was fun. It was engaging. The cinematography was impressive. There was a reason beyond those things I just mentioned into why this movie was so popular. The the script, per se, and some of the underlying themes uh, were quite rich again. So I look forward to that discussion with Father Mike Ritter. Now, for tonight, we are again in chapter 9. So if you want to turn your Bibles to chapter 9, and I will read verses 8 to 17. Verses 8 to 17. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh." And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will look upon it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. Okay, well, among other things, this evening, I really want to get into the meaning of the bow. So the word here, bow, is the Hebrew term for a rainbow, as we would conventionally think about it. But in the Hebrew, it is the same term used for hunting or uh, a military bow. In point of fact, if you were to go into Genesis chapter 27, verse 3, uh, this is what you see. Let's go there. If you have your Bibles out, let us go to Genesis chapter 27, verse 3. Here, We pick up the narrative in Genesis where Isaac is blessing Jacob. 
Listen closely here. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field. Okay, we'll examine this in the context of Jacob and Esau when we get to when we get to Genesis 27. What I want you to appreciate right now is the simple fact that <laughs> that Hebrew word for bow is the same word you see in Genesis 27. And I really do think we are to see that for what it is. And so when you go into the church fathers, you certainly see that uh, this has given rise to different explanations of the sign, which is first and foremost, the rainbow as a sign of peace. They picture God hanging up his bow in the sky, if you will, retiring it from, from service and signifying that he has ended his battle with the sinful world, ending the battle within the context of what but the flood, right? Others, of course, interpret the rainbow as a sign of God's covenant oath, whereby they envision the bow pulled back and pointed up to heaven. And I absolutely love that. If you are hearing this for the first time, just kind of hit the pause button and think about that. Just think about that for one second. Have you ever thought the rainbow as something that was ready to be cast to heaven, right? Pointing to heaven, forever faithful to his pledge. Now, there's a lot going on here. Certainly, you hear this, and for me personally, when I read these interpretations of that text, I, I see how they converge. Remember how, oh, if it wasn't last week, it was a couple weeks ago, I was talking about the deeper meaning of sin within the context of destiny. The word for destiny literally translates as to aim at, right? To aim at. Well, the Greek word for sin, hamartsia, means to miss the mark. The Hebrew word for law, to live in the law of God, to live in the love, God, love of God, is to strike bullseye, is to hit the mark. So do you see what's going on here? First and foremost, what we are to understand is that the battle between sin and grace, vice and virtue, is really a battle into whether or not you are going to reach your destiny. And ultimately, what then is Satan's number one task? To divert us from our destiny. And how does he do this? Well, he throws things in the middle of the road. He tempts us. Incidentally, my friends, the Greek word for the devil is diabolos or diabolane which literally translates as something thrown in the middle of the road. I mean, are you getting this? <laughs> the significance of what I'm talking about? All of Revelation is to do what but point us to heaven. And when we sin, we miss the mark. But if we live in the law of God and the love of God, and we exercise virtue, living in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, abiding in those great fruits of the Spirit, and of course, living in beatitude, we are on the mark. We are living in the heart of God. Now, pour those points into Genesis 9. And the bow signifying something pulled back. What is God after here? It's all about the covenant. To live in God's covenant life is to hit the mark. 
right? This is what covenant is all about. Every time you see a major covenant made with God, what have we talked about? What you'll find in the middle is sacrifice. And when we are living in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, offering all that we do to God, most especially all of those little sacrifices, we are on the mark. Remember, covenant life is not this is yours and this is mine. It is I in you and you in me. It is I am yours and you are mine. This is how you hit the mark to be in covenant relationship with God. When we sin, we begin to follow Satan's path. When we live in the law of God and the love of God, exercising the corporal and spiritual works of mercy, we are walking down the right path. Now, if you go off path, does that mean you can't get back on the path? Of course not. Go to the sacrament of confession, be contrite for your sin, be resolved to change, and you will be back on the right path. Moving towards your destiny. And what is your destiny? Well, in the here and now, it is to live in God's covenant life, which is a foretaste of the heavenly Jerusalem. So widely, widely important point here. Because if we miss this, then literally and figuratively, we're missing the mark. It's that important. And oh, by the way, do you think they understood this? That is the first readers of this text? You betcha. And do you think that the reader of Jacob blessing Isaac saw the connection? Of course they did. Incidentally, my friends, as we are talking about this, there is another correlation to be had here as it relates to seeing a Hebrew word somewhere else. Because when Moses is going down the Nile River, and he's going down the Nile River in a basket, that is the same Hebrew word that we see for ark, that we see for ark. So as the ark embodies God's salvific and saving love, so does that little baby in a basket traveling down the Nile River. Where will you find God? Oh, my friends, in the most unexpected place, even in a simple basket, like that of a manger, right? <laughs> the most unexpected place. All right, what about the significance of this language, everlasting covenant? Everlasting covenant. Hey, this is not a covenant that is just going to go away for a time. We see the same language used with Abraham, the same language used with Moses, and certainly in 2 Samuel 7, verses 10 and following, the same language used in the story and narrative of David. It all projects towards what? What does Jesus say in Mark chapter 14, verse 24? This is the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. That all of these other covenants my father made with man is now fulfilled, perfected, and transformed in my very flesh and blood. So what we are talking about now, as it relates to the narrative of Noah, in so many ways projects towards Christ, because he does fulfill that great and everlasting covenant in his own flesh and blood. I mean, have you ever asked the question, if God says everlasting, does he really mean forever? Yes. Well, how does he do this? But in the person of Jesus Christ. So the word everlasting 
is highly important. What did we read in chapter 8, verse 22, a few weeks ago? For as long as the earth remains, for as long as the earth remains, and what we just read here in verse 12, for all future generations. All of the Old Testament covenants are tied to Jesus Christ. That is why it is so, so important when we read the New Testament to see it for what it is, as a fulfillment and at once transformation of the prophetic thrust of the Old Testament. That when Jesus Christ says, you search the scriptures because in them they bear witness to me, he is letting the reader know, he is letting you and I know, my friends, that everything we read in the Old Testament is fulfilled in his very personhood. And that, my friends, is exciting. Even something as far back as Genesis 9. We understand Genesis chapters 1 to 11 as history of the early world, right? History of the early world. We don't really get concrete dates in sacred scripture until Genesis 12. And there we find ourselves roughly in 1850 BC. But even then, when Jesus sees himself as a new Adam, and Peter is talking about baptism as another saving by way of water with a reference to the flood and Noah, they are letting us know, that is Jesus and Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, of course, that these events in Genesis chapters 1 to 11 are very real. I know this was a huge point of emphasis and discussion last week, but I rekindle some of that now because it's important to just really appreciate that for what it is. There's more that could be said there, but I do want to get to know one of his sons this evening. So why don't we go ahead and read verses 18 to 27. There's some really good stuff here. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was peopled. Noah was the first tiller of the soil. Have you heard that before? We'll get into that. <laughs> he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine, and he became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brothers aside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it upon both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a slave of slaves shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed by the Lord my God be Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. In verse 28, After the flood Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Okay, so in these series of verses, what you have is the author introducing really the next phase of the Genesis story, if you will, showing that just as Adam's family line split between the righteous of Seth and the wicked of Cain's line, so Noah's family line divides into the blessed, that is the line of Shem, and the cursed, the line of Ham. So the Shemite line then is really the continuation 
of the righteous Sethite line, if you will, through Noah. Okay, now, how about some of these verses? The first tiller. Who else was tilling? Remember the passage that comes to us from Genesis chapter 2, verse 15? I'm not going to flip back there now, but just to reference it, Adam was called to what? Till and keep the garden. So once again, as we have been hitting each and every day in our study on Noah, we have a recapitulation of the events of just not Adam, but really the whole creation narrative. I mean, <laughs> he planted a what? Vineyard. We have a garden again. So important to see that we have in Noah a new Adam. And in a much larger context, we have a second creation. Okay, how about this phrase, saw the nakedness of his father? Oh boy, howdy. Has there been a lot of, uh, how can I say this, biblical scholarship into these verses? And I want to kind of focus in on what the Ignatius Commentary has to say here, because I know Scott Hahn is the author of the Ignatius Commentary, at least one of them, and this has been a point of emphasis for him. So, when you look at this verse, saw the nakedness of his father, within the context that we read them, we know that this has been translated as to mean that Ham looked perversely upon his naked father, which is what? But voyeurism, right? Or that he emasculated his father, which would be what but castration. Or that he sexually abused his father in some sort of homosexual incest. More likely, when you get under the Hebrew, this expression, saw the nakedness of his father, is an idiom, okay, an idiom for maternal incest where a father's nakedness is an indirect way of referring to the nakedness of his wife. We see the exact same thing going on in the book of Leviticus, chapter 18, verse 7. And so the seeing nakedness then is what? Synonymous with uncovering the nakedness of a close relative to engage in sexual relations. We see more of the backdrop with, with these insights in Leviticus, chapter 20, verses 16, 17 and following. So to distill this and properly understand it, <laughs> Ham is guilty of having sexual relations with his mother. Uh, this is what one can draw from the Hebrew, okay? And in many ways, this explains why a curse falls not on himself, but on his son Canaan, who evidently would seem to be the child conceived of this sinful union, right? In verse 25, cursed be Canaan. Of course, when you begin to draw this out, what do you come to discover? But Ham's line, starting with Canaan, is one that is in constant battle with whose line? But Shem's line. So this phrase, saw the nakedness of his father, and you get into the Hebrew, and, and you get into the literal sense, you can really draw that this is probably at best what it means. Uh, it is otherwise difficult to understand really why Canaan, who plays no role in the story at all, no role whatsoever, is mentioned five times in the immediate context. Five times, I mean, Canaan is mentioned in verse 18, verse 22, 25, 26, 27. So the account of Ham's perversity 
in so many ways supplies the backstory of how he became the father of Canaan, and of course, then who but the Canaanites, right, who were in opposition to the Israelites. If you were looking for a parallel episode in the book of Genesis where a drunkenness leads to incest with a parent and the birth of nations that become traditional enemies of Israel, you can go to Genesis chapter 19, verses 30 to 38. But I'm going to hold off on that right now. That's just a teaser. If you want to go to Genesis chapter 19, that's fine. But when we get to Genesis chapter 19, we're going to really engage that. Anyhow, seeing the nakedness of the father uh, as it relates to Ham is widely important because it does give us a deeper understanding of the larger context to why the Canaanites, <laughs> the Philistines, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, who all come from the line of Ham, are in constant battle with God's chosen people. Now, how about verse 23, covered the nakedness of their father? Well, supposing the use of the idiom that we just spoke to, that comes to us from chapter 18, verse 7, this means that what? Shem and Japheth discreetly covered their naked and violated mother. What else does this speak to? But the importance of voyeurism, right? What is voyeurism? Well, voyeurism is to look upon the naked uh, with lust and in just simple terms. To turn on your computer and to watch pornography, that's voyeurism. The looking at, right? If you get into the word, what does the root in voyeurism mean? But to see the eyes, right? Voyeurism, the sin of the eyes. So voyeurism, something very important. They turned away. And, and that's important too, the turning, because what do we know about the Greek for repentance? Metanoia, a turning away from one thing so as to go into a new direction. Well, in this context, they turn away so as not to sin. Why? Well, what were we talking about earlier? They didn't want to miss the mark, miss the mark. They didn't want to sin. They didn't want to hamartia in the Greek as Paul speaks to it. They didn't want to miss the mark. They wanted to stay in the law of God, in the love of God. They wanted to belong to God in covenant life with God. Doesn't it all go back to covenant and how we understand sin and grace, vice and virtue? You ask me, what does Noah have to do with, with how we live our days in 2018? Boy, let me tell you something. A lot can be drawn from this passage which at the very least is the importance of voyeurism and how to avoid it. Turn off the computers. Look away. Turn away. Now, what about verse 24 here, the youngest son? Certainly, this detail hints that Ham resorts to maternal incest as a bid for power. Okay? It was always about the blessing of the firstborn son. Okay, so this is a bid for power, and Ham probably hoping and wanting to seize the more exalted blessings that would have been intended for Noah's firstborn, who was who but Shem. How about verse 26? Blessed by the Lord my God be Shem. My dear friends, this blessing is unique, because really it is the first time in sacred scripture that God is identified as the patron and protector of a particular individual. And this point should not be overlooked. 
And as I have already detailed, the patriarchs in history past who will later share in this very privilege is the God of whom? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. They are sharing in this blessing. They are sharing in this great covenant, this everlasting covenant. And what's so phenomenal about this is that when we are baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we live and abide in the sacramental life, we are sharers and participators in that great everlasting covenant. Isn't that beautiful? What does 2 Peter 1.4 say? We participate in the divine life of God. We participate in the divine life of God. Okay, lastly here, because it is a verse that caught my attention, that phrase, God enlarge Japheth. What does the Hebrew name Japheth literally mean? Well, to enlarge, to enlarge. What have I said about the meaning of name and revelation before? The very name Japheth speaks to this kind of foreordained purpose and vocation to be the father of one who will enlarge his family for the sake of God. Who was Moses? One who was saved from the water. Who was Abraham, but the exalted father? Who was Sarah, but the exalted mother? Who was Peter after his name was changed, but the rock? In a name, what you discover is again that foreordained purpose and vocation. This is why it is so important for us who are parents to discern what we are going to name our children. That God's hand might be in it that we might be inspired by the Holy Spirit to give the name, the very name that God would desire. It is incredible, the great vocation and power that God has given us as sons and daughters of God to share in his power of creation and to participate in his very work. Amen to that. Okay, we will stop there because that really does bring us to the end of the narrative of Noah. In Genesis chapters 10 and 11, we start to get into the nations that descended from Noah. But I think for all intents and purposes, it is Genesis chapters 6 to 9 that really capture the essence of what the narrative of Noah and the episode of Noah is all about. So hopefully we did it justice. We spent, oh, I don't know how many episodes, at least six, if not more, on Noah. So Again, if you have any questions, comments, observations, please do not hesitate to email me at jholljmj at yahoo.com or you can go to my website at joeholcraft.org. Just hit the contact link button there and send your message on its way. So let's pray. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.